also a tin teardrop. But I'm doing well, well. I run on laser beams. <laughs> Star Hello and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's transcendent 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Ant-Man B, which is track 20 on the album, track 7, the final track on side 3. This was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California in March 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, personnel is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo, on guitar. Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, on guitar. Uh, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton, on bass. John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on drums. And Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals and saxophone. And on this track, two saxophones played simultaneously. Uh, l- the length of this track is 3 minutes and 57 seconds. Uh, my guest today is Tommy Mack. Tommy Mack is a musician who is currently working on music under the name the Iron Duke. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. So um, I, the first question that I usually ask for for people who where it's their first episode is, um, how did you first encounter the music of, of Captain Beefheart? And what, what kind of stuff were you listening to prior to that? What was your lead up to Captain Beefheart? I must have first encountered it through my dad's record collection as I encountered most music back as a, a child when in the, in the days before streaming and, and broadband internet when recorded music was beyond the, the financial reach of, uh, of most kids. Um, and I think, I think I'd encountered Beefheart. My dad had, had Trap Mask Replica um, and Mirror Man, Strictly Personal, um, neither of which particularly easy albums for a, a young kid to get into. Very true. Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What was I listening to before that? Um, probably Meatloaf, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> but yeah, I, I got loads of stuff from my dad's record collection, and um, Beef Art was definitely something I picked out. But I don't think... I don't think I really had a great deal of interest in um, in the Good Captain, and until I saw a documentary uh, narrated by John Peel, which was was a screen I think on Peel's fiftieth birthday or something on on BBC TV, mm-hmm. and seeing the, the whole Beef Art story laid out, plus hearing uh, some of his more accessible music as a as a lead in. And then I went and bought Safer's Milk after watching the documentary and started to, to explore his oeuvre a bit more fully. Well, uh, about how old were you when you, first of all, how old were you when you first heard Trout Mask and, and roughly how old, if you don't mind telling me, roughly how old were you when you saw the, the documentary and, and started to dig a little deeper? Um, I must have been about 12 or 13 when I first heard Beefart, maybe even younger, maybe 11. I was just starting to flip through through my dad's record collection um and i I think i admired it more than i enjoyed it back then Mm -hmm. um i i my my dad was into jazz and miles davis a lot of kind of fusion era stuff so 
I, I had some sense that some sort of musical process was going on here rather than just chaos and, and horrible noise. But um, I suppose, as you can imagine, to a 12-year-old Meatloaf fan, it, it didn't necessarily uh, all go in right then. And then I must have been 17 or 18 when I saw the um, the, the John Peel doc, doc, documentary and uh, I got safe as milk. I think I maybe, maybe I was 18. I think I'd just finished high school and I was working and uh, caught that and started getting into him uh, a bit more. And were you already playing music at this point? Yes, yeah, my uh, my brother and I um, played, well, we've played in a, a number of bands over the years, and so uh, we were, I think we were both more into to Zappa than Beefheart as uh, as teenagers, we quite liked the uh, the smutty humour and um, <laughs> aloof uh, condescension that I mean, appeals to teenage boys that, that you get with a lot of Zappa stuff. Um, Certainly, we we tried to put a fair bit of that into our our own stuff. And Beefheart, I think, grew on us um, a little later. So, say when we become a bit more musically aware, a bit more musically literate, and pick up on on what's going on. Yeah, Zappa really does have that that magic combination of of potty humor and superiority complex that really does appeal to to the teenage mindset. Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And you are um, a guitarist, correct? And a singer? Yeah, yeah, yeah guitarist and uh, and singer. Um yeah, and definitely uh big Beefheart fan ever ever since then. So the I I give each guest on the show an opportunity to t- to pick uh which track they wanted to talk about and you selected uh Ant-Man B indicating that one of your one of your early musical projects, one of your early bands was named after this song. That's right. Um, our, uh, I guess it was our first band um, as it uh, as it evolved. We'd done a couple of gigs under the name Squid, um, I think, and I remember one of the gigs sampling and playing the uh, Squid in a polyethylene bag, fast and bulbous skit at the start of that. Um, but it was a much more established band called Squid, um, sort of extreme metal band with loads of kind of fetish adjacent stuff and uh, <laughs> then <laughs> rather than <laughs> three schoolboys and their ham-fisted mothers of invention um their, their manager came to a couple of our gigs and said you know this name's taken back off and so uh yeah digging for a new name i'd, I'd love to say in sort of like a mescaline fueled vision Don appeared to me and said, you'll be Ant-Man B from now on. But um, I think we we were just flipping through loads of stuff and we got the Trap Mask replica vinyl out, um, went down the track listing. I think China Pig was considered as a band name, but um, there was a rock band called China Drum in the UK at the time. Um, Sugar and Spikes, I think, was on the shortlist as well. And, and in the end, we went for Ant-Man B, Though we truncated it to Ant-Man B, like Sloop John B. was a big Beach Boys fan. Well, still am as well. Oh, that's cool. I like that that uh, the abbreviation of it down and then making the connection between... Uh, Beefheart and the Beach Boys do seem like they might be p- 
polar opposites in some respects, but there are some odd moment, odd bits of, of continuity between the two. I mean, they both use the theremin for starters. But with a grounding in something visceral and, and immediate, obviously it's, yeah, sonically, aesthetically very, very different, but um, I suppose, yeah, sim- similarities of, of mindset there. Um, you know, let's go away for a while. Um, I guess I wasn't made for these times. This uh, you know, my smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frown land. Both uh, guys, Don Van Vliet, Brian Wilson, sort of leading their peers and so, <laughs> leading their peers often somewhat reluctantly behind them. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it, and and certainly putting you know forcing musicians to go through a great deal of of blood, sweat, and tears to <laughs> to produce their um, their visions on on. Uh, audio visions and audio although um wilson i believe at least could could read and write music so he was able to produce charts for the band whereas beefheart essentially banged it out on the piano and then yelled at them until they played it right um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, whip <laughs> kind <of> whip <laughs> yep whip and equip um so uh, if you don't mind me asking around what part of england did you grow up in um I grew up in a, a town called Wilmslow, um, which is a t- suburban commuter town about 30 miles or so from Manchester. And I, I thought at the time that the, the dullest, um, most suburban, conservative, small and, and capital C place on earth. So obviously this sort of music was a, a window into something other. So funnily enough, recently I found out two fairly successful bands attended my high school. Um, Doves left before I started, and uh, and the 1975 started after I left. So I'm sandwiched between two. Wow, a lot of lot of musical talent coming out of that relatively small small area. Yeah, yeah. Who'd have who'd have thought? <laughs> Well, my own personal theory has always been that the crappier the town you're from, the better the band you're probably going to form because the, you know, people in these, you know, industrial nightmare towns or like these barren suburbs have nothing to do but to form bands to express, you know, whatever lurking id they may have. So you get amazing groups coming out of like in America, you know, Cleveland or Detroit or, mm-hmm. or you know, these, these really, uh, really grungy, hard, hard living kinds of places. Yeah, absolutely. I think you are, uh, I suppose, statistically, most people live in pretty crappy places. So statistically, yeah, most uh, most music and, and art's gonna gonna come out of these sort of places. And I suppose, yeah, indeed, um, a lot of people say one of the problems with pop- popular music at the moment is only posh kids can afford to do it. So you get a, a complacent mindset. Um, which I think there's certainly some truth in that. Yeah, the the era of the garage band is a, a more much more challenging when no one can afford a place with a garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. So out of out of curiosity, I grew up in um, in Michigan here in, in the states, and I now live in California. And when I would hear the Beach Boys as a kid, that felt very exotic to me like this this kind of idealized uh, vision of even in the later you know when it gets darker and stranger the even the later stuff has this um has this very shining west coast 
feel to it. For for a kid growing up um, in a suburb near Manchester, what did the Beach Boys sound like to you? Uh, yeah, I suppose similarly, just uh, uh, visions of the California sunshine and um, <clears throat> endless rolling beaches, endless rolling waves, and obviously to a, a teenage boy, cars and girls um, be, being a big part of the equation too. Um, which we got um, the the much maligned Mike Love to thank for 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 a big part. Yeah, true that. Um, not, not that I'm here to defend or, or lionize Mike Love in any way. You understand? Oh no, a- absolutely no. I, I know where you're coming from. It, it was, I mean, the the beauty of the man's voice is undeniable on a track like God Only Knows mm. or something like that. But uh, yeah, as a person, I gather he. And I will, I will fully concede. I don't really know all that much about the Beach Boys, other than enjoying their music and and being aware of Brian Wilson's contribution. But from what I understand, Mike Love is well. He's a Trump supporter for starters, which is um, I, I'm not going to, you know. Actually, I will cast aspersions on politics. If you're a Trump supporter, <laughs> I don't really want you listening to this podcast. So you yeah, know, there's fair pl- enough. plenty of plenty of other stuff that you can listen to. Um, but that's all beside the point. Uh, so when you were first when you were first starting off um, in music, and you said you've got these poles of of Beefheart and the Beach Boys uh, when you're starting with with Ant Man B, um, what what kind of music? What were you aiming for musically in terms of what you wanted what you wanted to produce? What what kind of songs were you writing? Um, what we were aiming for, as I, as I said, we were sort of like ham fisted mothers of invention in that we. We saw ourselves as being too good to uh, to to pin ourselves to any one genre, so we wrote a lot of pastiche sort of songs, punk pastiches, and sort of Beach Boysy, um, beat group pop sort of pastiches. And I, I cringe when I when I think about some of them. Um, oh sure, but uh, yeah, we I guess we we were trying to do a lot of uh, different things, and um, like like most schoolboys in a band, we thought we were smarter and better than everyone else out there. Which, frankly, in Manchester in the late '90s, we pretty much were. That what, <laughs> what was really strange in a in a sort of backlash to the whole Britpop thing on the Manchester pub circuit around then, you had this really bad sort of third-rate US alt rock fetishism. So you'd play a gig and you'd play with like a bad Sonic Youth knockoff, a bad Pavement knockoff, a bad Pixies knockoff. Um, you know, all kind of scruffy white English boys pretending to be scruffy white American college boys. Um, and funny enough, it put me off that sort of music for, for years and years because I'd first heard it through sort of very bad derivative copies. And uh, it took me a long time to, to come around to the, the beauty and, and genius of bands like Sonic Youth in, in their own right. Yeah, if you're first exposed to something through essentially a really bad Xerox, it, it will it will taint you against that particular type of music for for an extended period of time that's interesting that that was what had caught on and was was in the pubs rather than in the the late 90s in the states it was basically a lot of very bad grunge knockoff type bands um leading down toward the 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 darkest days of the late 90s and early 2000s when suddenly the new metal was everywhere and that was that was all you <laughs> That was all you could hear. I was just listening to some people earlier today talking about the group Corn, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's a horrible flashback." I suddenly remember <laughs> hearing that that music and and being, you know, and I'm not, 
you know, people like what they like. And if you're a corn fan, that's, you know, more power, to, more power to you, listener. But um, it, it immediately took me back to a, play, a place in time that I did not particularly want to revisit. Yeah, yeah. Funny, funny thing with corn, I suppose, slightly ties in with beef art. I wouldn't call myself a fan by, by a long chore, but sort of by, by far and away, their, their best stuff is like where they're at their most abstract and amelodic and ideally Jonathan Davies isn't singing. Um, they're by far the worst, as you say, the kind of grunge-influenced stuff where it's just this sort of woe-is-me, chest-beating. Um, generally, yeah, I'm not a new metal fan, but by far the best stuff is quite spiky and abrasive and uh, <laughs> sort of almost unlistenable. And then... Over the years, it became this sort of air- airbrushed grunge kind of bands like Puddle of Muds and <laughs> Limp Biscuits. Oh, oh <laughs> Jesus, yeah. No, that was, that was a bad time. I mean, there was obviously stuff going on that was good within, you know, independent music and, and improvisational music and so forth. But the, the stuff that was, and I suppose this is true of many eras, that the stuff that was on the charts is, was really dire. But as a really snotty young man during that period of time, who, as you were saying, of, of teen years, presumed myself to, to know better and to have discerning tastes, I, I, just, I just remember being absolutely aghast at at the at that era of music yeah yeah it's funny it's uh i think what um what only really dawned on me late i went uh i saw black sabbath the day before my 20th birthday my my last day as a teenager went went to ozfest saw black sabbath um the original lineup and uh slipknot were supporting and slipknot's fans are so young we're not talking teenagers like preteen kind of 11 and 12 year old kids dressed up in masks and boiler suit um i'm not a huge slipknot fan but in a way that was kind of cool that like a band that could appeal to to that many really young kids and get them that infused uh, we saw a lot of them crying being led off by their parents after a couple of minutes in the mosh bit um, but you know certainly they, they were a pop phenom um as as they say, well, as no one says really, but as, as I just said, <laughs> it, that's that's interesting. I could see. I mean, I was a, as a kid, and honestly, to this day, I was I have a lot of love for like Halloween and horror movies, and so I could see that being a strong appeal for a kid with a group like like Slipknot, where you know costumes and this kind of um, uh, very very silly horror movie atmosphere is. Uh, is is a big part of their presentation and their and their their mo i could imagine as a kid being pretty excited by that i spoke to someone for this show um uh discussing beefheart and he compared beefheart's voice to rob zombie which was one of those occasions where i'm like i can absolutely see what he means but i in a never in a billion years would have made that that connection that's (laughs) that's definitely someone from a younger younger generation than myself and their their frame of reference but i thought that was very interesting that that uh, he was able to see that that connection. Although I, I rather doubt that Rob Zombie is a, a, a Captain Beefheart fan. Although stranger things have happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on Ant Man B, um, this this particular track uh, is one of the more kind of swinging and jazzy tracks on the album. It uh, it has a real um, it's. By the stand, until he gets to his saxophone playing, which begins at about a minute and a half, and I didn't really realize I was listening to the song right before we talked, 
and I didn't really realize how much of it is instrumental. Like it's yeah. it's mostly at about a minute and a half. All you it's instruments from then on. In. He stops singing, and it's all horns and and the magic band. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's a it's a relatively conventional groove. Um, as you say, quite swinging compared to a lot of the more overtly polyrhythmic tracks um, on the album. I suppose what I what dawned on me after, when I, I re-listened to it a few times myself, I I went for a run and uh, I listened, listened to about half the album on, on my run, which uh, was, was an nice. interesting experience. Um, and I listened to the track uh, Ant-Man B a few times. What dawned on me is, yeah, it sort of it locks into a groove, but in a way that creates a strange sort of tension in that um, I, you know, I listened to your, your first episode where you're discussing Frownland, and at mm-hmm. first it sound, Frownland sounds like chaos, and then you start to notice that there are distinct patterns there, just that they're um, in, in very odd time signatures and um, very odd time signatures to put together. Where, whereas uh, Ant-Man B so, feels like the pieces almost fit together, but not quite. Like, I mean, I, I don't have the musicological ear to analyse it as such, but it's like the, the time signatures are, are very close, but not quite. So there's a quite a small phase difference and the, the guitars are stepping on each other's toes almost. Yeah, it would be interesting to to see like a, a breakdown of the type that, that Samuel Andreev did for, for Frownland of this track because yeah I, I know exactly what you mean the the guitars and the bass and the drums they are it is a groove and they're all moving they're kind of moving in the same direction but there is a feeling of like someone missed a step and so everyone's like slightly out of out of time with each other but not in a, a really um a, it's not like you can pinpoint and go oh the bass is you know playing in you know, seven, eight, and everybody else is in a different time or something like that. It just, it feels slightly, slightly wonky and knitted together. Um, but yeah. n- not as, not as uh, uh, in your face as a lot of the other, the other tracks on the album. It does have a, a pretty, pretty propulsive swinging four, four beat that uh, John French said the beat was actually invented by, by Van Vliet. Uh, they had a name for the drum beat. They called it PK Ropi which I think kind of fits in like an onomatopoeic way, like Picaropi, Picaropi. I can see where they, they would have come up with that that particular term. And I also think that's mm. a great example of like trying to come up with a way of expressing music when you don't, when you cannot read or write music of just, of just kind of onomatopoeically going, okay, it, it, it kind of sounds like, and then having a phrase or some nonsense term that, that uh, corresponds to what you want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I don't know whether I was subconsciously remembering stuff I'd heard about beef art, but I certainly used to to write drum beats like that, sort of uh, give onomatopoeic symbols, syllables to to different drum sounds, and then try and try and sing or speak them to to our drummer and and have him uh transcribe them on the on the drum kit that's that's a good drummer who can take that and and 
be able to run with it and come up with something. The the few times I've I've tried that with with different musicians, and I I have said a few times on the show, I I am not going to call myself a musician. I scratch around on a couple of instruments, but the few times I've played with other people, and I would try to express like, you know, maybe something like, and then they just look at me, you know, like a lizard had crawled out of my mouth or something. Like I have no idea what you're trying to convey to me right now. Yeah, I've I've always been quite lucky. I've always been the sort of Don Van Vlee or or Dylan figure, um, surrounded by by technically better musicians who, <laughs> upon whom I could foist my my ideas uh, to to interpret. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been spoiled in that in that respect. Um, but yeah, the, as you say, the whole groove on this track is it feels wonky, doesn't it? like a like a car with sort of <laughs> with one uh one wonky wheel right one assume... one triangular wheel that just doesn't yeah. quite go along with the other ones which i i assume is deliberate because they they were such a tight band um a i assume they can't have been playing out of time after rehearsing the album so hard and b i assume you know Don would have <laughs> taken someone out back and uh, given them a, a tongue lashing, if if not worse, ha- had they uh, had they slipped from the timing. So I assume that's a deliberate effect that was you know, rehearsed at, at quite quite great length. Oh, I'm sure you're right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that whatever kind of syncopation or polyrhythm we're hearing in that was was entirely intentional. Uh, one one thing that struck me listening to it this this most recent time is, uh, you know, Van Vliet famously would not rehearse much with the band, and a lot of the songs, uh, from what um band members say, he was more or less randomly applying lyrics on top of of the music that he wasn't entirely sure were going to fit. So, you know, sometimes like on "She's Too Much for My Mirror," he ended he had like a page full of lyrics that he just ran out of time because there weren't there wasn't enough time in the song. But on this track, as with a few others, like My Human Gets Me Blues or, or When Big Jones Sets Up, uh, it really feels well, well, the vo- the vocals and the music feel well synced. Like the the opening, when it's the call and response of his, you know, white ants run and then the band plays the riff and black ants crawl and then the band plays the riff. It's it's that that call and response feels very, very tight and rehearsed to to a degree where i do wonder if if maybe this is one of the ones where he actually did slip in and and uh rehearse the lyrics with the band a few times before they went into the studio yeah you go this is the single we got to get exactly. it sounded tight for the charts <laughs> get it on the daytime radio maybe not yeah, this is yeah this is the single up until the roughly one <laughs> yeah. minute and 30 second mark when he starts doing the the saxophone and the the two the two horns at once um, was evidently inspired by uh, Rasan Roland Kirk the the jazz saxophonist who who did have like kind of a special rig setup where he could play two or three different horns simultaneously mm, through mm. through a, a series of mouthpieces and there's there is some video of that online and I'll try and link to that. Um, in in the episode data for this because it is very impressive and I, I can certainly see I mean Kirk was never super super free in the way that like late Coltrane is or something like that but I can certainly see how Van Vliet would have been influenced by that um, but th- the difference being that you know Rasan Roland Kirk was was an actual extremely technically skilled and brilliant saxophonist who really could play a couple of different horns at the same time. Whereas what Van Vliet is producing here, um, uh, Mike Barnes compares it to uh, 
gets out his tenor and soprano saxes playing them simultaneously like car horns or dog barks which <laughs> which i mean and to be fair i think it kind of you know I, i'm always when i have horn players or, or any other musicians on the show i i like to talk a little bit about a saxophone playing because it is one of those areas where even people who adore Beefheart as I do sometimes have kind of mixed feelings about when he would would break out the horns. Yeah, um, and uh, Jan, his wife, used to to hide his sax, right, to to stop him emptying his gigs out because it was bankrupting <laughs> them. I did not know that, but that's hilarious. I, I can and I can absolutely see that because yeah, French said something along the lines of yeah, he'd he'd pick up his saxophone and half the audience would immediately clear out once he once he started blasting it into the into the microphone. <laughs> uh, I, but I I do feel on this song it it works in like a percussive kind of way like he's he's kind of honking along with the beat and the sense that it does feel a bit like car horns is fitting for this image that he's got of like teeming humanity as an anthill and and the you know the the hustle and bustle and cruelty of of day-to-day existence Mm, yeah yeah absolutely um I guess uh, I, I wouldn't call myself uh, knowledgeable about, about jazz by any extent. I guess I hear a little of, uh, I mean, Roland Kirk, who you mentioned, and Ornette Coleman in there a little as well. Mm. Um, but as you say, yeah, it works. It, it's, it feels conversational with the, uh, with the, the rest of the arrangement. Um, and, you know, not <laughs> considering how long it is as a uh, proportion of the track, not and, and how abrasive, not particularly indulgent, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That it does seem it fits with the feel of the track. It contributes to the the propulsiveness of the track, and also white ants running, black ants crawling, yellow ants screaming, brown ants gnawing. Unlike on some of the other songs, it's mixed fairly well, so that the horn doesn't completely obliterate what the rest of the band is doing. Like mm. on, um, on Lick My Decals Off, baby, there's a, a track called uh, Flash Gordon's Ape, which is yes. the, the music is absolutely, I mean, the music and the, the vocals and everything are, are brilliant. It's a, it's a phenomenal track, but the way it's mixed is the entire band is on one side and the other side is Van Vliet's just blaring saxophone. So his band is completely relegated to, you know, I think like the right speaker or something like that. And it's I get what he was going for, but it's also very frustrating because it does just completely eliminate your ability to hear most of what the band is doing. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I was uh, I was listening to to Raw Power, the uh, Iggy and the Stooges album, the other day, and uh, damn, but I wish they'd recorded the rhythm section better on that album because the bits you can hear of what the Ashton brothers are playing is, is absolutely fantastic. But you feel like the, the lack of respect shown them in, in the band at the time is, is reflected in the, the position they're they're relegated to in either the original David Bowie or, or the Iggy pop remix of, of the album. Um, 
And yeah, maybe <laughs> similarly it reflects <laughs> Tom Van Vliet's view of his of his band, of his musicians at the time. Exactly. The... Yeah, shunting them off to the corner like that. And yeah, Raw Power mm. is one of one of the great, you know, truly strange mix mixing decisions on on both the, the particular. I mean, the Bowie original is obviously an eccentric mix, and then Pop's uh, remix of it is. I mean, you can hear the instruments a little better, but it's got its own its own eccentricities. Which do you mm. prefer, just out of curiosity, the original mix or the the remaster? Um, I guess I prefer the Iggy mix because because I've heard it so much and I'm I'm used to that. So mm-hmm. um, I suppose the 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 Bowie mix takes more risks, tries to get more more detail um, and nuance in there, which you can give it credit for. Whereas Iggy is sort of going out, going for all out sonic heft, um, which <laughs> sort of Marky certainly hits there, um, and it's incredibly impressive. I say, it's sort of between the two, you you can get most of what's going on, but yeah, damn, I wish there was a a version with that that great drum sound that great bass sound on the uh that's sadly lost to lost to the era uh lost to, yeah to the ages because bowie apparently was essentially trying to do the best he could with with the mess that iggy handed him and they sort of recorded <laughs> like guitars and drums and vocals on like the same track bounced things down in a way that no uh, no professional producers and engineers w- would ever do um Bowie, i think was just trying to salvage something from this, this mess that he'd been handed um and as, as such he did a did a pretty good job yeah there there is that element of and i mean you mentioned when you were talking earlier about you know 90s alt alt rock acts and you, you mentioned pavement and there there's always this element of when something is strangely recorded or poorly recorded or lo-fi, um, sometimes that just becomes part of the experience of the music and you you accept it that way. And other times it's just immensely frustrating because it's like, I, you know, it would be really nice to hear what the bass player is doing. And yet it sounds like he's playing inside of a tin can or something mm. like that. Yeah, I suppose, you know, I'm being... Uh... I'm being very nitpicking here. The f- you know the first hundred times or so I listened to Raw Power, I, w- I was m- merely blown away. As you know, most of the uh, first hundred or so times I listened to most of Beefheart's albums, it's only after many listens you start to think, oh, you know, I wish I could hear more of that bit right there. Exactly. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, you mentioned pavement and sort of alt rock bands who, in the sense that, I guess in the early years for a lot of bands like that, lo-fi sound was um, a necessity born out of um, lack of recording budget and lack of sure. access to expensive studios. But then, of course, it, I suppose especially after Nirvana blew up and, and then released in utero with a much rawer sound, that sound became a sort of sonic thumbprint that denoted a, a certain set of musical values. Um, so 
once you get to the the mid 90s and beyond it's always interesting to um you wonder to to what extent a band is is choosing to use lo-fi production to um to make a point like right um, it, it becomes a, like a mark of authenticity like no we're a real rock band listen to how crappy this recording is yeah exactly apparently alex james from uh from blur said he couldn't understand for the life of them when when they recorded their eponymous album the the one with song two and, and beetle bum mm-hmm. things on the, the one that's said to be more kind of alt rock influenced he said he couldn't understand for the life of them why they went into a, a two thousand pound or five thousand pound a day studio, recorded these things in hi-fi, pristine hi-fi precision, and then spent days deliberately degrading the sound. To, he said, "Why not just go somewhere cheaper in the first place?" Exactly. That's the equivalent of like five thousand dollar designer jeans that already have rips in them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I suppose coming back to to Beefheart and Trout Mask Replica, because obviously he'd um, he'd recorded Safe as Milk, which is sort of relatively commercial sounding for 1967, strictly personal, getting a little rawer. It's it's interesting. To, you know, I, again, I you know, I assume pretty much everything on this album was a deliberate choice because it's such a, a personal vision that um he worked so deliberately on so i guess the the raw sound and the um sometimes slightly wayward mix every bit of that is is very much a deliberate decision oh yeah i i've, I've read interviews with um with zappa who who essentially said something like um you you really couldn't tell don van vliet anything in terms of like this is how something is supposed to sound or this is how something is supposed to be recorded he had no interest in that and wouldn't listen to it and didn't care and so zappa's approach was simply all right i'm just going to do whatever he wants i'm going to produce this album to the best of my to the best of my ability to match with what he's asking me to do whether or not it's something that that is you know traditionally done in terms of production or or you know, album mastering or what have you. So yeah, all of all of the uh, the eccentric decisions regarding mix and production and and so forth are are very much very much conscious on at least on the part of, of Van Vliet and and through to Zappa. I know I know the band has has regularly expressed some frustration that the the album is not not mixed more uh, mixed so you can actually hear them on on some of the tracks rather than mm, being mm, totally yeah. totally blown away by the vocals. Yeah, absolutely. Again, like it'd be lovely if someone turned up the the masters and you could get a a CD two with the instrumental mix on to hear every note. The yeah, the closest we've gotten thus far is on the on the Grofins box. There's the the CD of of rehearsal tapes of them going through the material, and uh, you can actually hear. But I mean, the the recording quality is is obviously a bit rougher because it's just you know the the mobile recording unit at the Trout House rather than in a in what was e- even by by what French described as a a fairly lousy recording studio that they actually recorded the album in. It's still a clearer mix than the the material from the house. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I heard somewhere that, uh, that Zappa wanted to, to make a field recording of the whole album up at the, the Trout House. I <laughs> love that phrase. Um, yeah, that was but, his original plan was to do was to take a mobile recording unit and and record it there. And sources differ as to why they went into a studio. Um, it was pretty from from what I've read, it was Van Vliet's insistence. And it, he either insisted that uh, Zappa was being cheap and didn't want to spend enough money on him. So he demanded to go into a studio or he said to, or he said to Zappa, uh, the band can't transcend their environment within the house. We need to go to a studio. So one way or the other, it was it was Van Vliet's insistence, but but precisely why or what rationale he used uh, is is not clear. Okay, either way, uh, yeah, sounds believable. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That 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 seems very much. Both seem very much within his his wheelhouse. Uh, yeah. So so prior to your your current project, uh, which is Iron Duke, you were in a band called White Ape. Is that correct? White Ape, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I was listening to some of that, uh, some of that last night. Um, that was, um, and that just recently, that ended as of, was it 2018? 2018, right. yeah. Uh, our, uh, our guitarist left for Australia and various other members had things going on. So that was, uh, we decided to draw a line under it. Um, within White Ape and within your current uh, project in Iron Duke, do you consider uh, Beefheart to be an influence? I mean, he, he's always an influence on me. What, whatever. Uh... Oh, sure, yeah. What, what, what it made me think of, and I, I really sincerely hope I, I intend this as, as a compliment, and I, I hope that I, I, you know, not knowing all of your tastes, I really hope that it's not uh, something that will cause you to angrily hang up on this call. But what it, what it made me think of <laughs> was something along the lines of like early XTC or maybe soft boys where it's the kind of jagged elements of, of beef heart sound are repurposed into creating a pop song. And I actually think that's really a, a fascinating thing to do of taking this, um, you know, ex- exceedingly unpop sound and then managing to create, you know, a, an, an action, a, like a recognizable song with a, a catchy melody and, and that moves like a, a pop song moves. I, I think that's, that's a really in- interesting experiment, and I'm always fascinated by bands who can pull that off. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly the- there's a lot of that sort of post-punk sound in there. Not necessarily directly from listening to those sort of bands, but as you say, sort of like, you know, I love I love Beefheart and, and I love Zappa, especially sort of early Mother's stuff. Um, but I love I love pop music, you know, I love the, the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And, you know, I even like a lot of, you know, proper capital P chart pop. With, with this podcast coming up, the, the two albums I listened to this week were Trapmaster Replica and then Taylor Swift's Folklore, which you probably can't get too much more polar opposite uh, albums than that. So, yeah, pop, pop music with, with jagged dissonant elements just about sums it up. I was I was talking with um, I think it was Steve Froy who said to me that when he first got the first Beefheart album he got was Safe as Milk and the only albums that he had prior to that were two Beatles albums and a Monkeys album and and I feel like that's that is quite a step to go from Beatles and Monkeys to even Safe as Milk which is very you know pretty accessible by by Beefheart standards. Yeah, I was going to say um, after Safe as Milk came out and. Obviously, the photos of, of John Lennon with the Safe as Milk stickers in his kitchen, 
which apparently he tore down after he heard Beetle Bones and Smoking Stones because he <laughs> uh, <laughs> he thought his, his ego was uh, was wounded that he thought Beefheart was mocking him, which Beefheart quite possibly was. I think he but, was. I mean, yeah. After yeah, after um, you know, Lennon and and McCartney digging on on Safer's Milk. You hear Beefheart and, and Zappa's influences all over the White Album the, the following year. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting that you bring that up. I, I had another guest uh, discuss the influence of of Beefheart on the on the White Album and and uh, some of the more unusual sonic experiments thereon. Um, I, I have to. I have to ask, since you you mentioned the the Taylor Swift album, how is it? I haven't heard it. I feel very lame and middle aged to be to be digging on on Taylor Swift's folk album um, over over some of the the capital P pop stuff, which some of which I would say also say uh, is absolutely fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I I will rep for her. She's a great writer. She's she's a great storyteller, which I I never really picked up on before on the sort of more straight ahead pop stuff. Um, and, you know, she actually she tells. I, I write a bit of of microfiction, um, mainly because because I've got two kids, so like a hundred or so words is the most I can get down sure. in a, a single sitting. And um, I published a couple of things on microfiction Monday magazine. Um, so I'm quite interested in the idea of of trying to to tell a story in in very few words and to to create a rich world in yeah, in in a very short space of time which yeah a lot of the songs on the folklore album like uh, great american dynasty do that uh they they create this this wider world in in very few words so yeah i i, I can't imagine taylor swift needs uh, <laughs> needs my support to to, to upper streams but yeah uh, i'll recommend that, that album definitely I don't know. There might be a few people listening to this who who would never have heard that otherwise. Who might check it out. Um, it, the when you're talking about um, telling a story in so in incredibly concise phrases, you mentioned smog earlier, and I do think that Bill Callahan of Smog is one of the 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 kings of creating incredibly evocative and worlds and environments with uh, you know Hemingway uh, Hemingway level short phrases. Mm, mm, yeah absolutely uh, so i think that's going to pretty much do it for ant-man b uh when darren hosts the show he rates every track i say on every episode i rate every track five out of five because i don't believe you could really compare them to anything um mr mac if you would like to rate the track you are welcome to do so and if you have anything else you'd like to say about the song or anything that you would like to plug or promote or or signal boost uh go for it now's the time sure okay um <laughs> Well, yeah. In terms of the the other things that jumps out at me on the song, we we've mentioned "Lit My Decals Off Baby" a couple of times, um, which in some ways is is an even harder listen than, than "Trap Mass Replica" because "Trap Mass Replica" is incredibly melodic. It's just that all the melodies are happening at the same time a lot of the time. <laughs> um, where on that man be some of the rhythm guitar, you've got a I feel a little glimpse ahead to the the more sort of a melodic and grinding sounds that you get on on some of the the decals stuff oh that's interesting i hadn't thought of it in that respect but i can i can see what you mean there there's definitely um i I think it's 
it's an Eric Goodis's article. He he mentions the um the the guitarists just on this track, the guitarists just laying into their strings, playing very regimented, uh interlocking rhythm parts with an emphasis on rhythm. So yeah, the the emphasis in the guitars on this track is much less in creating the you know kind of colliding melodic melodic figures than it is as you say the kind of grinding chordal um rhythms uh bashing against each other yeah yeah bashing against each other is 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 right almost like like two dogs barking at each other from neighboring gardens across the stereo <laughs> pan that is the second time on thus far on this show that that aspects of Vfarts music have been compared to to sounds made by dogs. Um, Which you uh, think, right? Because you, you say right, there's sort of like animal references all over the album. Oh yeah, no, this is an incredibly primal, feral, animal obsessed record. And and Marco Rossi compared the uh, the saxophone on when Big Jones sets up to a dog who's gotten hold of a dish rag and won't let go of it. That kind of <laughs> ur, ur, ur sound. <laughs> I love that. But then on, on Ant-Man B, f- funnily enough, offset against that is some of his sweetest singing in the in, in the first minute or so of the song before the sax section. Um, um, once, once the song gets underway, but before the sax, some of the singing on there sounds almost like he's singing on uh, too much time or something. Really quite sweet soulful singing yeah it is quite beautiful by by the standards of of the vocals on on this album he it is one of his more lilting performances when you get into the you know why did you have to do this uh why can't you let us be i'm 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 mispronouncing uh why do you have to do this you got to let us free those those lines are are delivered with a very melancholy um uh beautiful lilt to his voice that as you say you know looks forward to something like too much time or my head is my only house when it rains or or one of the more gentle tracks from his his later period yeah yeah absolutely um and like you say that's a a theme throughout the album the man's inhumanity to man and the the bestiality of man compared to the the perhaps more favorable bestiality of nature Mm, yeah yeah we'll never know Alrighty, and uh in addition to uh your your music um iron duke which i i believe you said uh some material should be available late uh 2020 or early 2021 uh do you have anything else that you would like to like to push or or like to signal boost um yeah so the iron duke my, my debut single bottle it ups out on uh, on sotones records say hopefully before christmas if not in the in the new year late 2020 early 21 um uh, yeah if you want to hear something a bit more beefarty um white ape and uh, my previous band general khaki uh, our stuff's still out there um yeah, there's a, there's a few very short Tommy Mac stories out there on Microfiction Monday magazine. Um, I that's that that's the the gist of it. 
Okay, I will make sure that all of that uh, data shows up along in the uh, the episode data along with this episode. Uh, if you want to follow Track by Track on Twitter, we are at underscore Track by Track. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter for some reason, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. I have the same handle on Instagram. Uh, Tommy Mack, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening.